Okay, turning to uh, God's Word, John chapter 7. This is a strange passage for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is that uh, Jesus talks some but doesn't say very much, and actually we hear much more from his opponents uh, than we do from him, much more than normal. Uh, So it's interesting that John gives so much space to that. I tried to cut it up into a smaller chunk. I I don't want to preach 50 uh, verses, but I just couldn't. It's just all one unit, so we're just going to do it, and we're going to have fun. So uh, if you will join with me in following along, hear God's word to you this morning. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about them, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, 
Where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you'll seek me and you won't find me? And where I am, you can't come. And then skipping down to verse 40. When they heard these words, some people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as we hear all these words and the contention around you, uh, we feel a similar, uh, even divisions in our heart at times, Lord. Confusion, uh, unclarity. And so we need your Spirit to come and instruct us that you would set our hearts to do the will of God and be able to hear and understand your teaching. Lord, we pray that you would fill my mouth with uh, your thoughts and your words, and that you would build your people up through them. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Don't judge me uh, is a favorite fr- a phrase of a friend of mine and Bethany's. Uh, she often will post a picture of herself eating a huge piece of cake in the middle of the day, and the caption just says, don't judge me. <laughs> Or something else that people might think is weak, right? And she loves to say, don't judge me. Uh, And this is uh, something that's very common for all of us. We don't want people to look on us and condemn us uh, to make us feel bad. And of course, uh, we have a larger sense that we shouldn't be about judging each other. Uh, And Jesus is often quoted to this effect, right? Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be judged. Uh, This is the kind of thing I would often hear quoted growing up in the church uh, when someone was confronted, uh, albeit lovingly, uh, with something in their life, uh, maybe a particular sin or uh, some pattern of living, uh, the immediate response would be, hey, you know, judge not that you not be judged. Let's just just stop. It it became a very easy uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, um, I think, obviously, most of us can see the value in saying it's it's wrong to judge, but... uh, for, for me, most of my life, I actually just felt worse when people told me not to judge. Uh, because I knew that I was actually someone who judged constantly. Right? Every time I walked down the street became a huge struggle because I was already forming opinions about all the people walking past me and judging them in my heart without even trying. It was almost as if it's in my blood. Like I can't help but begin thinking about these people and making statements in my mind. And now half the time, I was wrong. But even worse than that, half the time my judgments were right. (laughs) So I actually felt kind of justified in what I was doing. The reality is, is that uh, we, as a people, actually do judge things constantly. As a parent, 
when I hear a fight breaking out among my kids, I go and I ask them, okay, tell me, tell me what happened. Tell me your stories. At that moment, I've entered into judgment. I'm beginning to decide and discern who's telling most of the story and who's only telling part of it, and I and actually decide who's at fault and what the process is for making peace. As a business person, you meet with potential partners, potential new hires, you test out new products, you discern their value, and you decide for or against it. That is called judgment. There are a million judgments we render each day on what's valuable, how to diagnose the problem, and so on. And we even do this in our relationships. Right? Uh, with my friends, I'm in a process of judging whether I can really let them in on all of my life, on those deepest sorrows. I'm beginning to decipher and discern how much I can trust them. I'm forming a judgment about them. And that's because making judgments is a crucial part of being a human made in God's image. It's part of our job. You are made to discern the truth and make decisions. You are made to judge. The problem comes is that we often make judgments about things we don't really know anything about or things that are beyond our reach that we don't have the authority to make a judgment about. This is often the case when we judge other people. Or uh, we condemn people for the things we ourselves are guilty of. So as a people who care about truth and righteousness, Christians have been especially guilty of this. Uh, but the problem is actually not with judging itself, but with poor judgment, unfair judgment, harsh judgment. The problem isn't uh, judgment, but when judgment is not led by mercy. So the issue is how we judge. And so Jesus says in this passage in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So that's the topic for today. How to judge. It's intensely somewhat provocative. We shouldn't be about judging people, but the reality is we do. So what are we supposed to be doing when we are called to judge? We're first going to think about how Jesus is judged by the world. And I hope that as we think about that, we'll also see a path laid out for ourselves as a church. But also I hope that as we consider this, we'll see areas for our thinking and judging to mature and for the compassion and mercy of Christ to begin leading our judgment and our thinking. So first, how does the world judge? Jesus, in this passage, is judged according to two standards. First is the approval of the authorities, and second is uh, how well he meets the expectations of the people. Right. So first, just look at uh, verse 45 with me, with the approval of the authorities. It comes out very clearly. The officers say... Uh, when the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers said, well, no one ever spoke like this man. We were listening to him. We were thinking about what he was saying. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That is to say, the only one in this situation who has the right to say what you should believe is us. They clearly expect these officers they sent to not think about what Jesus is saying, but to simply trust their own verdict. And they reject Jesus for two reasons. First, he seems to break the law. If you remember uh, in chapter 5, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Passover, and he comes into the, around the pool, and there's uh, this multitude of sick people, and he heals a man, a paralytic, who had been 
unable to walk for 37 years. But he did it on a Sabbath day. And so it seems like, on the surface, Jesus is breaking the day of rest. He's active. He's showing some sort of activity and healing this man. Jesus says, in response, of course, you have, you're very confused. The only way you can think healing someone on the Sabbath is breaking the rules is if you don't understand the Sabbath in the first place. If you have shallow judgment, healing on the Sabbath is not breaking the law, but the best expression of the law, just as circumcision would be a good expression of law. He says this in verse 23 and 24. If a man receives a circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law is not broken, are you angry with me that I healed a man's whole body? Well, the second reason they reject him is that he's acting like a rabbi. That is to say, he comes into the temple during a feast and he stands up and he starts speaking authoritatively. Right? That's what a rabbi or an official teacher would do. But he doesn't have the right credentials. Look at verse 15, uh, 14 and 15 with me. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, the sense there is uh, not just being surprised. Wow, this is impressive, but actually somewhat offended. Right? Jesus is seen as presumptuous that he would come and take on this position of teaching. Listen, you can't just waltz in here and announce that you're the rabbi for the day, right? Some of us, we might have a similar reaction if at like a church barbecue, someone stood up and just said, okay, listen, I'm just going to tell all of you. You know, are you, really, are you really in that position? Well, the reality is that there was a long and rigorous process for becoming a rabbi. Uh, years of uh, hard study of the Old Testament. Uh, you're expected to stay up uh, late into the night studying and get up early. Uh, lots of being trained and being discipled by other rabbis, learning the tradition. All is part of the study that people expected from Jesus. And of course, that's a good process, right? If you want to have a teacher, you want them to be rigorously credentialed. But the danger here with their credentials is that the Pharisees want to use them as a way, as an excuse to not give Jesus a fair hearing. I don't like what this guy is saying. And, he, and after all, he's just a backwoods country preacher. He's not a well-credentialed rabbi. What could he have to teach us? Right? How could he be right and we be wrong when he's not credentialed? That is to say, the judgment of the Pharisees is colored by pride. Well, the other danger with credentials is that we begin to trust them rather than doing the work of discerning someone's character and weighing their words. That is to say, we use credentials sometimes as a way to stop thinking. Right? This is what the crowd was doing. This guy doesn't have the credentials, so no one's approved him, so I don't think he's right. Rather than taking on the challenge of forming their own judgment, they were lazy. They rested on the judgment of the authorities. Rather than carefully investigating Jesus and putting themselves at risk in any way, they let the authorities do the work for them. And frankly, this is just intellectual laziness. Right? And uh, it's the kind of thing that's uh, common, easy to find, whether in universities or in church denominations, it's, it's rampant. Uh, but the question is, why would the crowd not question more? Why wouldn't they find out for themselves? Look at verse 13 with me. John tells us, Yet for fear of the Jews, 
No one spoke openly of him. Now, this is a Jewish crowd, so who is he speaking about? He's speaking about the Jewish authorities. This crowd of Jews is afraid of the Jewish authorities. That is to say, um, they don't want to even appear to question the Jewish authorities, and so they just, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to have that hard conversation. I want to ask those questions. That is to say, their poor judgment was motivated by fear. They aren't willing to form a good judgment about Jesus because they're just afraid to go there. But the reality is that they actually weren't motivated in the first place because Jesus is already somewhat of a disappointing Messiah. The crowd judged him by their own desires and expectations for Messiah. We saw this in chapter 6, in verse 15 there, where Jesus comes and they say, Hey, this is the prophet. Let's take him and we'll make him into our king. Right? This is the guy who's going to free us, and Jesus withdraws. We were hoping you would do more for us, Jesus. So we actually see this even in his brothers. Look at uh, verses 3 and 5. I can't tell if they're being sincere or sarcastic as a brother of brothers. I imagine there to be some sort of sarcastic jab here, but maybe I'm biased. Uh, they think his marketing strategy is, is not going well. In fact, they think he's quite foolish. Right? They look over, overlook something very obvious. Look at what they say. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, man. For not even his brothers believed in him. That is to say, if you want followers, you got to get out there, Jesus. Go hit the pavement, man. You know, people need to see your cool stuff. They don't understand what Jesus is about. That is to say that his progress so far is just a little disappointing. He had this whole group of people leaving him in chapter 6, and, you know, Jesus, it just seems like you're not trying. Same thing for the crowds. They have clear ideas of what the Messiah should do for them. And they're also sure that Jesus is not like the Messiah they wanted. They're so sure of this that they don't even bother investigating to see if they're wrong about Jesus. Look at verse 27. They say, But we know where this man comes from, that is Jesus, and when the Christ appears, the Messiah, no one will know where he comes from. Well, first off, that's a, that's a strange notion. You can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. That's not justified by any ways. But they don't really, uh, they're not really interested to figure out if that's right. Look at verse 40 and 42. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, where the village of David was? Now, of course, the people were right about this one. The Messiah was to be born from Bethlehem. But they were wrong about Jesus. Had they actually gone and asked him, hey, listen, where were you born? They might have actually found out, oh, you're from Nazareth, but you were actually born in Bethlehem. That is to say that their disappointed expectations blinded them. They were unable to fully form a good judgment because of their disappointed expectations. So Jesus is rejected by many in this crowd. He doesn't fit the approved picture given by the intellectual authorities of the day. He's a rebel, and he doesn't have the degrees or credentials to back up his rebellion. And so he's judged poorly by the crowd, who's afraid and discouraged, disappointed. And he's judged 
harshly and unfairly by the Pharisees and priests who are blinded by their own pride. These are the criteria, these are the standards by which the world uses to judge Jesus, and they're the same standards the world uses to judge the church. Is it helping us to achieve the version of the good life we've come to expect? Uh, are they approved by the cultural authorities of our day? Well, I just don't think it's really worth trying. And of course, we all know that those are grossly unfair. So I, I want to think about what Jesus does in response. And this is our second point. How does the gospel judge? How does the gospel judge? Look at verse 24. Jesus says, not just do not judge, but do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. What are the criteria of the gospel that Jesus uses? I want to say that the gospel judges with truth and love. Simply put, truth and love. So first, the gospel insists on truth. And actually, of all people in this passage, we begin to see this from Nicodemus. Remember him in chapter 3, he came to Jesus, he was confused, and now he says in verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? That is to say that Jesus, like all of the prophets, should be judged according to the word of God. That is to say that the law has its own way of judging people. And Jesus says, I don't need any special pleading. You should judge me according to the law. And he, Jesus, in fact, summarizes those principles in kind of four common sense things. He says, think about my origin, my teaching, my actions, and my goals. Origin, teaching, actions, goals. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I came from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. Jesus basically says, yeah, you, you know who my family is. You know Joseph, you know Mary, but you have not yet looked into the whole story. Have you asked my mother Mary about my birth? Have you asked and sat with Joseph? Have you spent the time with him? You will never understand the truth until you understand his origin. That's what he says. The true reason he has come at all is in fact that the Father has sent him. And he says, okay, think about my teaching. If you can't figure out my origin, think about my actual teaching. Jesus says in verse 16 and 17, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, anyone paying attention to his actual words will be able to tell you very quickly that he is teaching exactly what the Old Testament teaches. If you know your Old Testament well and you come and read Jesus, you think, yeah, he's not breaking from what the Old Testament teaches. He's heightening and deepening and bringing more insight into what the Old Testament teaches. But in fact, he's saying the same things. So Jesus says, actually, if you set your heart on doing God's will, you'll be able to tell if his teaching is from God right away. You don't need to have credentials of any sort. You don't need to have a doctorate. You don't need to have, even be a pastor. You can just be a plain person who has their heart set on God, and you can understand right away whether it's from him or not. This means that if you actually desire to love God, it should be obvious enough if his words fit the pattern of sound teaching. 
But if you are only set on your own will, you can only hear his words as a threat, as the Pharisees did. Well, what about his actions? Nicodemus says, listen, before we condemn him, we need to see what he actually does. Right? We actually need to weigh the things he does, not to mention his, what he says. And Jesus says this in chapter 5, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That is to say, just think about the things Jesus has done. He showed up at a poor wedding that ran out of wine, and he provided wine in abundance for them. He healed a man who had been paralyzed for 37 years. He fed tens of thousands of people. He walked on water. All of these things somehow did not enter into judgment. Finally, he says, think about my goal. What is motivating me? Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. This is profoundly true in every area. Truth speakers, trustworthy teachers, are marked by a desire to serve others and not their own name. That is to say, the truth is always distorted for a reason. People lie and deceive because they want to get something out of it for themselves. And we need to see that Jesus, what Jesus gets out of speaking the truth, rather than a good name, is actually the cross. And this is how we begin to see that the gospel judges not just with truth, but also with love. The gospel insists on truth, but it insists on truth at its own cost. It pays for the truth with its own love. It turns out that on every one of these four criteria, Jesus is vindicated, and the Pharisees failed to examine him properly. But what's remarkable in this passage is just how little Jesus says to defend himself. Right? I'm making his case, but what does Jesus say? He just says, hey, listen, let me just tell you the real standards for judgment. And then he leaves it. He doesn't say, by the way, you should have been in Galilee when I fed 20,000 people. He just leaves it. He could have cleared up the confusion of the crowds right away. I was born in Bethlehem. Don't you understand? He just leaves it. Why? Jesus embraced being misunderstood and eventually even wrongly condemned because he was actually driven by love. He endured being misunderstood if that meant that he could still invite people into relationship, where they could still come to true him knowly through that relationship. That is to say that the doorway to knowing Christ is actually not proofs and arguments which make sense of every objection. Jesus shows us that the doorway to knowing God is actually trusting him. That is, having faith, through which we slowly have our questions answered. That is to say that what Jesus is up to in this entire passage is not answering people's questions, but trying to invite them in, to come and follow him. And this is what love does. But you have to see that love is costly. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it, its works are evil. Jesus knew that speaking the truth would cost him his life. 
This is how great his love is, that he willingly embraced the cross, the false accusations, the unjust judgment for our sake, so that being judged wrongly, he could rise to judge rightly. He judges with truth and with love, with mercy and with justice, because Jesus' love of truth cost him his life, so that when he was vindicated and risen to eternal life, he could actually share his life with us. The thing that uh, most of my friends growing up would quote, Matthew 7, 1, continues, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounced you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. We see that Jesus' judgment, what he received was one of hatred and false, harsh judgment, but what he gives is a judgment of mercy and justice, of truth and grace. The question for us this morning is, do we love truth that way? Do we love truth that way? In a way that costs us? You have to see how different Jesus' loving truth is from what many Christians claim for themselves. In fact, uh, we love to just talk about how irrelevant we are in the culture sometimes. You ever heard Christians talk this way? You know, the culture, they judge us wrongly. If they really knew who we really were, they'd be on our side. If people really loved the truth, they'd be on my side. And so in Christian culture, it's very common to find uh, loud-mouthed, opinionated, but often ill-informed people elevated. People who are terrible at forming good judgments. And even worse than that, they're not motivated by love but their own name. And this is just as true of many Christian bloggers as it is of our presidential debates. This is important for us to hear as a church in the West because the reality is is that we are in the middle of an identity crisis. The last hundred, probably 70 years, 70 years or so, we've been in a total identity crisis and many are mourning how sidelined our voice has become in the culture, how unimportant we feel. In the past, of course, the church was established and it was a respectable thing to be a Christian and as a ministry of a public honor and, and now... Of course, many people I meet, the church is almost a forgotten memory. I, I, I meet people and I tell them I'm a pastor, and they go, oh, really? Like, do people still do that? Briefly put, the church is seen as irrelevant to what most people care about. And that, that stings us, doesn't it? Because as Christians, we care about the Lord. We care about the church, and we want to see more people brought in, and it's our life. And so we want to be given a fair hearing. We want to be judged fairly. And so what happens is that we tend to think that if we reclaim our place for being heard in the culture, if we become more sophisticated, more with it, more culturally savvy, have more attractive websites, maybe more inspiring servants, or perhaps even in some cases, easier versions of Christianity, uh, then we will be heard again. And we sum this up under the heading of being relevant but the unstated thought in all of this is that if we get our voice into positions of cultural power, urban centers, if we gain cultural clout in universities, in cinema, in music, oh, we need more Christian music, in newspapers, in public debates, then people will begin to respect Christianity and people might begin to listen and convert. And you know what? I pray every day that more people would come into the church, that more lost souls would begin to hear the gospel of grace. But I, but I think that behind this concern is actually not 
a concern for the souls around us, but, but actually for our reputation to be restored. I mean, I think we, we think like this. If we were relevant, our churches would grow, our cultural influence would grow, we'd have a place at the table, and then the respect we so badly want will be given to us again. I want you to know that I think that this is greatly misguided. At best, this will lead the church into spinning its wheels, working on stuff that just doesn't matter. At worst, this will lead the church into losing the gospel. But if we think about what Jesus does in response to an unfair hearing, I think we'll see the way forward. That is to say, embracing the cross, embracing being misunderstood, persisting in relationships, inviting people in. We're called to imitate Jesus and live by his criteria. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In him there is no falsehood. If we endure the cross, we will begin to see gospel fruit in our relationships and even, even behold God's glory in time. So this leads us to our last question. Who gets to judge? This is our third point. Who gets to judge? We can start by saying that hypocrites are disqualified. Right? Right out the bat. Hypocrites, not allowed. And we see the Pharisees fail their own measures in this, in this regard. They insisted on the law, and yet they failed to judge Jesus according to the law. And in fact, More painful than that, they failed to judge themselves according to the law. But the reality is, friends, is that most of us are in that same boat. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, Presbyterian theologian of the 20th century, a great thinker, uh, said this. He has this illustration. He says, you know, if every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung around its neck, And this tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments that this child uh, bound other people with. The moral precepts might be much lower than the biblical law, certainly, but they would still be moral judgments. Eventually, each person comes to that great point when he stands before God as judge. Suppose, then, that God simply touched the tape recorder button and each man heard played out in his own words all those statements by which he had bound other men in a moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years. Thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other men. Then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? The Bible points out that every voice would be stilled. All men have to acknowledge that they have deliberately done those things which they knew to be wrong. Nobody could deny it. That is to say, all of us are disqualified. And that's because judges have to be credentialed. And Jesus says the standard is verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God, whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Who here can say without flinching that your heart is entirely set on doing God's will. None of us. And so, of course, the ultimate judge is Jesus, the one who has 
his heart entirely set on the Father's will from eternity past. The one who took on flesh, who suffered false judgment because of the Father's will, at the hand of wicked men who was falsely accused, never given a fair hearing, Jesus is qualified to judge not only because he is holy, but also because he suffered unjust judgment. And so he is able to judge not just out of holiness, but with truth fueled by mercy, with discernment led by compassion. And in his kindness, as the exalted judged one, he willingly pours out mercy and compassion, truth and discernment and life onto all people, especially his people, as he pours out his spirit from heaven. And so we begin to see that actually the true judge is not us, but our Lord Jesus. And that's a good thing. Nonetheless, uh, actually God has put each of you into different places of authority. And if you are in any kind of authority, you have the responsibility of judging. Plain and simple. You do it every day and it's your job. So what are we supposed to do with that? Right? There are informal places like parenting, driving, making business deals, trusting friends. There are formal places of authority. The New Testament has this office called elders, which comes from the Old Testament office, who were people who would sit at the city gate and they would hear cases and make judgments. So there are formal places in the Bible for people who are called to make judgments. So what are we supposed to do? Well, the first thing we need to see is that we are judges, but we are temporary ones. We're provisional ones. At best, we are provisionally qualified because it's the grace of God that qualifies us in the first place. And even then, we should probably think of ourselves as small claims court. Okay? That's the best way. But how should we judge? First, set our heart on doing God's will, following his ways of love and truth. And we can honestly say as believers that, yes, there are times that my heart is actually set on doing God's will. And so we can also evaluate the times when our hearts are not set on his will and confess that and refrain from judgment. But we're also called to grow in wisdom so we can give right judgment. And there's no mechanism for this. You can't have any sort of formula for right judgment. There's always a risk of failure. But this means that we have to exercise our minds so we can gain wisdom. Kids, this next week, school is starting for many of you, and I want you to know that one of your main jobs in school is becoming wiser so you can make better decisions about the people around you, about your life. You can make better judgments about how to love people in this world. That's your entire job in school. Brothers and sisters, Christian adults, your job as Christians is to continue investing in your mind. Continue exercising the muscle of your mind because the reality is God has put you in places of judgment. And so if you could be a righteous judge, if you could judge rightly with love and truth, let me tell you, Proverbs says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. A righteous, wise judge who loves truth and loves mercy is a great relief. It's cold water on a hot day. So may the Lord equip us as we follow our Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, we pray that you would come now and instruct us and uh, seal these things into our hearts. Equip us, fill us with your mercy, with your compassion. Make us wise and kind judges, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.